losing it. Yeah. Like I feel like I just imagining <laughs> kind of, like sitting around being like, well, if it was flat, <laughs> but now we know it's not flat. <laughs> An infinite, infinite plane. <laughs> For today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Jacob Blumenfeld, who is joining me from Berlin. Thanks for coming on the show, Jacob. You're welcome. <laughs> welcome. So we're going to talk about uh, German idealism today, and but we're going to specifically be talking about um, Jacob's forthcoming book called The Property Relation, Freedom, Right, and Recognition in Kant, Fichte, and Hegel. So um, I think this is a dope project, and I think that uh, our listeners, once we get uh, rolling, will also appreciate why. I'm going to give a little summary. As one can imagine, the, it's a little dense, but uh, Jacob does a great job of making it as clear as humanly possible. So the idea of, of property in, in German idealism is apparently uh, much more important to this um, area of philosophy or this historical period than many people appreciate. So I'm going to start with Kant, try to give some kind of like summary for, so to orient our listeners, and then I'll go to Fichte, and then I'll go to Hegel, and hopefully we can clarify and ask uh, questions. No big deal. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so I'm going to try, yeah, I'm gonna try to Light keep knock. it. You'll just knock it out. Yeah, because what we read, it was like 60 pages, but it went through the whole thing. So I'm going to try to do that for our listeners. So Jacob argues that Kant thinks that property rights can only be provisional outside of a civil condition of, of public right. Property is a rightful relationship between wills and not a relationship between persons and things in themselves. The idea of possession or the concepts of possession and holdings are conceptually distinct things for Kant. So empirical possession is superseded by intelligible possession for property to be possible at all. Um, so what's involved in property is a relationship between wills that create reciprocally binding duties, and what legitimates ownership of property has to then be something like civil society or, or public right. There has to be a normative uh, structure for property to be legitimate as such at all. But he does think that it's intelligible to talk about property, and like all Kantian moves, we have uh, several postulates, things that are like demanded of us um, in order for practical reason to uh, think about things like property. So what is demanded of practical reason is that it presupposes the possibility of an intelligible possession of external objects. Why does it have to do that? Is It's because the possession of my things 
prevents people from using me as a means, which is very important to the basic kind of foundation of Kantian uh, moral philosophy. So for others to respect my freedom, there has to be a reciprocally binding relationship between equal wills. And this means that they have to be prevented in some sense from just using me as a, as a means, um, which would involve uh, various kinds of non-reciprocal arrangements when you take someone's property and use their things. So like Kant, Fichte says that property requires and presupposes a commonwealth, but this is where things get pretty weird and interesting. Fichte argues, however, that reciprocal recognition is absolutely unintelligible without a normative vision of social labor. And so from what I, we read, I, can, I gathered that labor is not so important for Kant, um, but for Fichte it's very important. So you have to have a normative perspective on social labor and the economy as a whole. So we get this really interesting transition to thinking about political economy. And what Fichte argues is that labor produces a total social product. And in Fichte's commonwealth, the citizen has no property or exclusive rights to dispose of things because the laboring activity is oriented towards the future and what the commonwealth is supposed to do to like reciprocally bind our wills is that it's supposed to make the conditions of future life possible. It has to therefore secure that everyone can live off their labor because labor functions as a means to life. And so at this point, a miracle happens in the argument, which is, I mean, it follows from what Fichte is saying, but he argues that we are all entitled to work less and have more time. So if it's true that the, the, uh, the Commonwealth produces a social total product um, that makes life possible, then there's a kind of temporal relation to how we spend our time. And I thought this was a kind of interesting connection to the Martin Hagland episode that we did. The third part is Hegel. And I think that some of this might be more familiar to some of our listeners. We did a Hegel episode. We also did a Kant episode, but I think that the relationship between Hegel and Marx is a little bit more straightforward. And so listeners might already be making connections, so I will try to keep it brief. For Hegel, the contractual relationship between wills sets off a conflict theory of recognition whose end is the ethical self-realization of society. I thought what was innovative in the argument and interesting to talk about further is that apparently something like the Marxian idea of abstract labor plays a larger role here than people tend to think. So abstract labor is is of the marketized, uh, sorry, labor productivity enhancing kind. It's the kind that in a when a system starts to produce for the purpose of exchange from the perspective of the whole uh, labor develops a kind of exchangeable quality. This is the abstraction of labor power. But this creates sort of alienation, but at the same time that it makes labor universal through trade and exchange. Concrete labor then becomes only incompletely recognized, but it is necessary for the development of what Hegel calls absolute ethical life, where people can come to see abstract labor as the product of collective human self-activity. So at the end of this, abstract labor becomes a means to kind of realize oneself in the collective social product. So interestingly, Hegel dissociates private property from freedom, potentially. 
And so the system of German idealism, as it turns out, is actually completed by socialism, which rules. So I'm going to... We do love to hear it. Yeah. So um, I, I hope that that was like more or less accessible and if you are listening and you are wondering about that whirlwind tour through German idealism then take a 15 second rewind and then regroup um, <laughs> yeah and then we and then uh, so yeah I'd also so having said that I'd like to invite Jacob to just say like what in the world made you start looking at the concept of property and to, to like develop this kind of interpretation of the progression of this idea how did this start where did you begin where did you land uh, thank you for that wonderful summary Lillian um, well like many people I was interested in Marx right I wanted to understand Marx's critique of political economy and I was interested in seeing it as a response to um, not only French socialism and English political economy or and um, and German philosophy but I also thought that you know German philosophy itself had a whole big discussion about political economy um, that Marx was uh, reading about and listening to through his teachers and through his his friends and comrades and this picture of like German political economy kind of gets lost in some of the debates about Marx so I started reading Hegel's philosophy of right but to understand and, and to understand who Hegel's talking to I started looking into um, Fichte who was this other you know very important philosopher who wrote this incredible series of texts on his vision of the state and his theory of property. And the more I looked into Hegel and Fichte, I, I noticed their use of Kant and uh, Kant's late work on the doctrine of right, which also centered around property. So just trying to understand this background to Marx, I got kind of, I went down the rabbit hole of, of, of seeing you know, why did these three thinkers, you know, I'm talking about the young Hegel, talking about, um, Fichte's Foundations of Natural Right and the late Kant, why do they all put property at the center of their practical philosophy? You don't, you don't think about that with these thinkers, right? They think they, they're, they're moral philosophers or they think about the state. Property is usually an Anglo theme, right? It's, it's, it's a liberals, it's, it's Locke, it's Mill, it's libertarians. Um, so I was really fascinated. What do the Germans say about property, right? And, and I live in Germany, right? And it's, uh, there's also a tradition of there's a different theory of property, a different justification for property in German law. And it does tie back to this social tradition, right? So I kind of left out the marks at the end and just went into this prehistory of the concept of property in German idealism to see, you know, this alternative tradition, um, this, this tradition that isn't so, uh, it's, not, it's not purely liberal, right? Because it has all these social uh, presuppositions to it, um, but it's not yet socialist, Right. It's, it's, it's kind of pointing in, in those directions. There's also kind of multiple interpretations of all these thinkers there. But many socialists like Kautsky, for instance, you know, they read Fichte as a socialist or they read Kant as a socialist, you know, or, or Hegel. So I, I thought it was just an interesting kind of lost tradition of critical theory, of, of proto-socialism. And that by looking at property, which is kind of the core object of critique in Marx's political economy, we can really maybe develop a, an interesting theory an interesting understanding that goes beyond 
uh, kind of labor theories of property or libertarian theories of property? I'll jump in. Yeah, that, that was really great. So I think you know, I'd like to ask you, you know, a little more like stage thin question, but to get more specific, I, I you know, honestly, I was kind of blown away by the Fichte stuff. You know, Me too. I did oh not see that coming, you know, about you know, the importance of, of, of leisure and all of that. So I think many of our listeners, they might hear property and think maybe our listeners are smarter than me. So I'll say me, you know, I hear property and maybe I'm a good lefty. I'm like, you know, that's the thing we want to abolish. Right. <laughs> and but then you get Fichte and you get a different argument for property that it's not necessarily about private property is about you know the conditions of life and I was wondering if you'd be willing to you know walk through a bit how Fichte gets from you know this different understanding of property that is you know I think ra radically different than the type that you get in maybe a Hobbes and Locke to this notion of free time mm -hmm. and leisure you know so what what is Fichte doing with this concept of property why is it you know so integral to the notion of, 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 of life and futurity yeah, I'll get to that in a second. Let me just back up maybe and say what a traditional theory of property says and then show why this other tradition is a bit so okay. weird. So normally people nice. think property is just a, the the legitimate right to the exclusive use of external things, right? Usually justified by some account of um, non-interference, um, like, like uh, negative freedom or economic efficiency. These are kind of the two main frameworks that people use to justify <laughs> private property, right? The efficient use of resources right. or my... My negative freedom to not be dominated by others. This German tradition has has kind of other other understanding of property, and it's not always so private. Although private property is, is important, it's not the only kind of property. And and with Fichte especially, it gets very weird. So unlike other thinkers, Fichte does not believe that um, private property relates to things. That's that's the first strange thing. He doesn't think private property is about things. Yeah. Like yeah. What? So 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 in, in his vision of like a of a commonwealth of a of a of a just state, rights to property mediate our activity to each other, our 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 free activity. Right. They 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 ground our ability to recognize that we have limits. Right. I have boundaries between me and you, and within this sphere, I'm able to act such that I could reproduce my needs, my life. Right. And that right to a sphere of labor. He calls property. So that's just kind of a different, already a different conceptual yeah. framework of what property means. It's like this, this right to the distribution of needs. And you could kind of see a relationship to our version of understanding of property. You know, we, we, we think that we use property to meet our needs. Right. So but we really tie it to the thing itself. Like this thing is my property. For 50, it's like this time, um, this, this, this time of, 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 of labor should be yours and it should be guaranteed by the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the connection to the state was like where I'm, you know, what we need to go immediately here because this is there's some fascinating things going on. Victor's make pulling off some like wild reversals, and one of them is that the state is justified, it seems, or legitimate only in as much as it actually does the work of protecting these rights to private property, outside of which there just is no property. He says, yeah, right? Yeah. So contra again, like a Lockean sort of understanding where like. For Locke, you, we, we did an episode on him a while back, right? Like, we have property in the state of nature, and we're going to build the state so that it could help us defend it. But mm -hmm. Fichte thinks that that's incoherent, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, the outside of the state, like, there's no consistent sense of property. But also, this means that everyone needs to have property, according to Fichte. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about what that means and what's going on there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's a bit complicated. So Fichte and, and Kant, they, they both do have arguments for, um, I would say, kind of pre-political justifications for property. 
based on conditions mm -hmm. of for Fichte self-consciousness itself. Right? I mean, I deduce property rights from my from self-consciousness. It's crazy. Kant deduces it from the <laughs> principles of pure practical reason. Right? It's like my pure practical reason right. makes it necessary that I could call things mine. Right? If I can't, if I can't call things mine, I can't really um, use things in the world to to pursue ends. Um, so Fichte, right. Fichte also has this strange thing. But Fichte realizes that none of these claims are valid as, as property claims. You can never have a valid property claim based on based on yourself, based on your own arguments, right? Although the claim, the argument comes from a, an understanding of self-consciousness and its relationship to other peoples, um, there's no such thing as property outside of the state, right? There, there, there's only property inside a civil society or civil sphere, which can legitimate it. It has to be legitimate. Same, same with Kant, right? It has to be legitimate. That said, for Fichte, it's really strong, though. It's not just that the state, you know, should validate your like pre-political property rights like in Locke maybe it's like the state should grant you property that means it should grant you a job or it should, it should, it should make mm -hmm. sure that you have a job right that means it has to actually plan the economy I mean in a sense or have to have mm -hmm. to have some yeah. kind of a intervention mm -hmm. some kind of system of balancing supply and demand well that means then you have to like relate to other countries in a certain way so that you can't just import and export at will and and and, and put people out of work so you have to just by thinking that you need to give everyone a job so that they could freely act, reproduce their needs, you're already going to the sphere of political economy. And that's why, he, you know, he, he starts in this simple conception of what it means to be free and then gets this whole theory of what he calls the closed commercial state, this, this strange combination, this, this planned economy that, yeah, if, if, if no one, if people can't have property, if somehow they fall out, then they have a right to take other people's property. Right. By force. Yeah. By, by force. I mean, they have a coercive <laughs> right to claim other people's goods that are yeah. kind of dependent <laughs> on their activity. So, yeah, it's it's wild. Because either everyone has property or property isn't actually legitimate. You know, a legitimate for a social foundation. Yeah. Yeah. That's. So, yeah, yeah. I'm a Fichtean now. <laughs> so, so, so there is, so there is a connection. Like, there's a tight connection, as we know, like in the Anglo-liberal tradition, as you called it, between freedom and property. And you've been touching on this so far, right? That like freedom, that property ha bears an essential relationship to freedom. That is also the case for these German idealists. So I wonder, I have to ask maybe how you disentangle or differentiate between like why freedom and property are so intimately connected. And in, you don't go into the Anglo stuff so much, but what's distinct about the German about this, yeah. this German connection between freedom and property. And I know part of the story lies in the fact that I think for all three, they're, they're as interested in the actualization of freedom, the conditions for actualizing freedom materially and really in the world as they are in freedom as some kind of internal relation or some kind of interstate, right? And so maybe that's one place to start with that. But yeah, I was wondering if you could say more about the distinct relationship between freedom and property for that. Yeah, great question. Well, for, for a lot of people in this Kantian tradition, um, the idea of freedom for many people is kind of moral freedom. So the freedom of the will mm -hmm. to choose its own law, right? The, that's the autonomy, an understanding of freedom as autonomy. But there's also this idea of practical freedom. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what they call practical freedom or external freedom or finite freedom. So freedom not of the will, um, but freedom of like freedom in my relationship to others. So it's, it, it's in, inherently interpersonal freedom. It's about how does my freedom uh, relate to you? How, do you? how do you enable or limit my freedom? That's that's like the beginning point, right? It's not freedom itself, like in terms of thinking or whatever that is. It's, it's freedom to act. So in, yeah. this, in this conception of freedom to act, <clears throat> we're already talking about other people. 
Um, this already requires ways of relating to people, maybe using rules or norms or laws that can um, bind us together in ways that are equal. But for, for this like line of thinking I'm doing, I'm kind of draw a thread that slowly approaches this early idea of recognition. Now, recognition, you know, there's a lot of talk about recognition today, but let's forget everything about recognition you know, <laughs> right? So this idea of, of, of recognition from Fichte and from the early Hegel, it's really about freedom, right? It's not, it's not recognition like in terms of politics, like, oh, recognize my claim to. Yeah. This, is, mm -hmm. this is recognition as to be a free being requires other people to recognize me as free so that I can act and, be, and, and respond to other actors as well. And I recognize people in recognizing me. So this early idea of recognition starts to appear in Fichte. It's almost there in Kant. And, and it really is tied to this idea of property. The idea of like how my, uh, my ability to actualize myself and to choose ends and to use things in the world cannot be done if we live on a planet together, right? Mm -hmm. a, a shared finite planet. I'm going to run into you. We're going we're gonna to mediate each other. We're going we're gonna to affect each other. Right. So for me to actually do that requires you to authorize me to do that. Like you have to say, OK, you can do that. And, and I have to say, OK, I can authorize you authorizing me. And, mm -hmm. and this is kind of the strange kind of conception of freedom that I think starts to develop in, in my account through mm -hmm. an understanding of property. Right. Not not through some kind of um, abstract idea of just recognition. But, you know, how does like my use of things in the world um, already demand a conception of freedom in which I can grant you the ability to grant me the ability to, and so on and so on. Yeah, so there's a kind of reciprocity and an intersubjectivity that I think is totally missing from the Anglo tradition of like thinking about property that maybe helps summarize a little bit. Yeah. I, I think in the, in the, in the relevant lines in the metaphysics of morals, if I'm not mistaken, Kant actually deduces this need for there to be recognition and freedom um, and like this mutual authorization from the fact that the earth is a sphere, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. right? Like yeah. if it were like an infinite plane, like we wouldn't actually need to deduce these concepts, but here we oh, are. Wait, That's what? Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, we, yeah. Because we can't escape oh one God. another because yeah. we, uh, uh, we will finite, run into each other. It's a finite sphere. Yeah. It's, it's an awesome, it's yeah. an awesome argument. It's Kant's best argument. It's like, if, if it. we live it on really an infinite plane, we, it's can, his best we can just walk around forever. <laughs> it would be fine. We wouldn't just need, farewell. Around, yeah. I'm, I'm out, out of here. here. Wouldn't need property. I'll never run into you. We wouldn't need states. But Kant is like, Kant is like, you literally need a place to stand or like, Sit, like in order to be oh so we, like that's the yeah so that's we where we want a sphere i am just losing exactly. it yeah. like i feel like i just imagining <laughs> kind of like sitting around being like well if it was flat <laughs> but now we know it's not flat <laughs> an, infinite, an infinite plane <laughs> of that we need you know a system of morals but yeah, if only the, the world were flat right. forever <laughs> yeah. yeah so what i actually find really interesting here is that you know also we'll get to the hegel stuff but I, yeah I'm, I'm really keyed into the content victor it seems as if also the important role of property is it actually also makes what we mean by mutual and social freedom intelligible and so i was wondering if you could unpack um, a little bit like you know, why is it so important that you know you know it's not just like your know, freedom of like you know, as your know, own saying you know how I externalize it but it's important that it's also coherent it, it, you know has a sort of coherent intelligibility for it to be something that can you know, be grounded in social life and so what I think is interesting is I think uh, a lot of people might think of property as you know, almost a limitation or a contradiction of freedom but they're turning to property because you know, you know the 
concept of freedom must be intelligible and property has a central role in making this coherent to us as the types of social beings in the form of life that we have. And so I was wondering if you could say a little bit about why it's important for them that, you know, there's an intelligibility to freedom that, you know, property, you know, makes uh, possible. Yeah. Um, so for all, for all these kind of thinkers, right, although in all their own specific um, ways, they, they believe that you cannot, you cannot take care of yourself on your own, right? This is this is very obvious, right? You can't take care of yourself on your own. You 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 need things in the world. You need people in the world to 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 express yourself. Your needs are not just for yourself. Your needs are other people. Your needs are other things in the world, right? And you also you know you, to to be who you are, to be free, comes through interacting with other people. For this kind of tradition, it's a it's a social concept in which the roles I have and the the relations to other people are not necessarily limits on me. They're what enables me to develop myself in new ways, right? For Kant, it's a bit on the border, I would say. But for Fichte and Hegel, it's definitely this kind of social conception. But but what happens when you start to really flesh that out, right? Because it's still a very vague understanding of freedom. Um, we're talking about a practical conception of freedom in the world. To really flesh that out, they, they go in the conception of right, right? Our conception of law, maybe. Mm-hmm. So this means kind of legalizing or, or, or giving a political social understanding that can make explicit our relationships to each other, our duties, our obligations, our exclusions, and to make that explicit that, so that then it can be publicly authorized or not. So even for Kant, Kant says, you know, we have these provisional property claims in the world. We have these, pro- we have these like property rights in the world, but they're still provisional unless a public authority that can speak to all the wills can authorize them. Now, this, this provisional authority, some people say, okay, that's just the state we live in, but it could it could actually just be like a future never-coming never thing for Kant. It's like everything never comes. For Fichte, it's also the Commonwealth is, is needed to authorize these relationships to each other, to make them public so that you can discuss them and debate them and change them. So they can't just be internal, right? Because these are external these are external modes of action we have. And for Hegel, it, it, it starts, it doesn't even start from your consciousness itself, right? For Hegel, it starts in conflict with other people already. You begin in the world with conflictual desires, and those conflictual desires require ways of relating to each other that can solve that those those conflicts, and and that conflict itself produces um, what he calls these relations of recognition and these this this kind of conception of right. So this is kind of all a theory of right in a sense, right? Which is the the laws of freedom, what Kant calls it, or um, in my understanding of Fichte, it's kind of a political economy of the state, and for Hegel, it's a way of understanding our our mutual vulnerability. And so yeah, that's that, that's how I, I understand their yeah. ability to render intelligible this kind of conception of mutual freedom, to externalize it into a system that we can then reflect upon and change. That, that's kind of a positive reading of it, right? <laughs> and even even though, like with Kant, as you said, you know, um, even though this state or commonwealth might never arrive, it does give us the criteria by which we can critique our present form of life. Is that correct? That's the way I read it. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, that's the way it makes sense to me. Or why else would you have this conception of a civil condition which can finally authorize our relations to each other if it never comes? If yeah. It never comes with the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. I kind of wish I lived there, but oh well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me, it's what he calls an idea of reason. Right? We use it to to sure. to as as criteria to judge ourselves in the present, and we we do this all the time, mm-hmm. you know, with our ideals. So I I want to ask about a li- one more thing about Kant. If I could go for it, just because people, you know, who study philosophy are interested in in this kind of thing or have listened to previous 
our Kant episode on dialectics. We started with Kant in a, a series on dialectics because Kant is like the the figure that creates the kind of the turning point for critical metaphysics. And there is always a series of antinomies, things that need to all be true but are contradictory. And then Kant tries to get us out of these antinomies. And um, then others are like, no, guy, you can't get out of these antinomies. You messed up. (laughs) And we're going to go bigger. (laughs) You're locked. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to go big or go home. Your, like, metaphysical modesty is out of here. (laughs) So I'd like to know, like, what is it about the ground that Kant sets in this case that later turns into this more intersubjective view that you were just talking about? Like, what does Kant do right? And then, like, what does he do wrong for these guys? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, Kant has, this this Kant has been read in very different ways, right? Libertarians read it and think it's like an ultimate justification of private property outside the state, I think is wrong. And uh, <laughs> Of course they do. Yeah. Of course yeah. they do. And uh, and socialists read it. I mean, I mean, there was a, this Kantian, like, you know, Edward Bernstein was a Kantian socialist and many, many else were. The neo-Kantians, they read Kant as saying, you know, this is just a justification that we shouldn't treat people as um, as means. This is kind of the political form of that argument. But yeah, there, so there are antinomies here and there are di- there are a lot of weird dialectical transitions in this uh, text of Kant's, The Doctrine of Right. Just like in the Critique of Pure Reason, he's got this famous question, how are a priori synthetic judgments possible, right? Here, it's like, how are a priori synthetic judgments of right possible? Which basically means, how is it possible mm. to say this is mine? Like that, that, that's what he's trying to figure out. How can I say this is mine? Like I, I'm, I'm speaking about a physical thing in the world, but I'm using an intelligible concept, like a, a normative concept, which, which, which relates to you, even if you're not there, it tells you not to relate. Yeah. So he's trying to figure out how is that possible? And um, here we have antinomies, right? It's only possible if I'm holding something, right? That's the, it's possible I'm physically holding something or it's only possible if I'm not holding something. Oh God. Yeah. I love that though. <laughs> so possession is possible if I'm holding something, right? Or it's possible if I'm not holding it because if I'm not holding it, then I actually have a claim to it. It's separate from my, my physical power. It's like a normative claim. So there's all these antinomies in Kant already there. Some Marxists read Kant as like typical, you know, I mean, Lukács, of course, I was like, just like, you know, he's, he's confused by these bourgeois contradictions. He's, he's the expression of bourgeois subjectivity mm-hmm. at the highest point. Mm-hmm. And he just can't, he can't resolve this, 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 this social and individual aspects of, of, of kind of early capitalism. He knows that, that there's kind of this social relationships that underlie property, but he also wants to justify in, in, in terms of individual freedom and pure practical reason itself. So he creates this, this idea that property is like provisional. It's like both, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's both mine and not mine. It's like, so for, for Lukács mm-hmm. and for some thinkers, Kant's Kant, <laughs> cool. Kant, like, he, he's expressing the contradictions of capitalism, right? That's what they all say. And mm-hmm. he is, right? <laughs> but, uh, sure. Fine. That's true. But, that's, that's, but there's more. Not, but those contradictions are very useful to think about and to go through. Yeah. And, uh, and we live those contradictions. So I'm not, I'm not against thinking it through them and trying to understand them and, and, and seeing the best accounts to to figure that out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he really tries to straddle, I think, this line between the individual and the social ground of property. And that leaves open a gap, right? In terms of what is the real ground? What, you know, is it in my, uh, my need, my, 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 myself as a rational creature? Or is it from other people that allow me to use things in the world with their consent? Um, and, and then Fichte and Hegel come in and they, they try to ground it in this kind of mutual horizontal level of recognition. 
of what they call right, and not just me and my my my, my reason itself. So it yeah. moved into the social conception. But once you move into the social conception, mm-hmm. you're kind of opening the gates already. I mm-hmm. think to un- alternative understandings of property, alternative understandings of economy, of freedom, and and then you get yeah. So you have this 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 opening once you really peel apart uh, what justifies property and what it can be. Yeah, and maybe it's that in Kant, like as a break with these prior conceptions of property, it's already there in Kant that it's not a relationship to things, but to others and specifically to others' wills, right? That actually like what property rights are about are about the the reciprocally, reciprocally like kind of self-limiting way that like free wills relate to one another. That really blows open this door for this whole line of development that you explore in such like fabulous detail in the in the book. Yeah, there's another just like building on that. There's another antinomy which comes out of the fact that Kant. I think Kant is more interested than we usually give him credit for, and you do a good job of fleshing this out in the problem of actualization. I think it's in the critique of judgment. The you know he's, we think of him as a formalist, as somebody who just thinks about like freedom primarily as a formal exercise of ration of, of a reason. Right. And not as somebody who is especially concerned with, well, how does all of this get materially fleshed out in the world? Like that's all the sensible world. Those are those are material contingent questions. You know, I'm interested in necessity, universality and all that. Right. <laughs> that real stuff. I mean, the pure form, baby. Yeah, exactly. Pure form. And, and I do think it's important that he is actually bound still by elements of that formalism that prevent him from fully fleshing out what he nonetheless sees, I think, in the later work of which this is a part, which is that, okay, you can't actually just render the questions of like, let's say the problem of freedom, you can't render questions of actualization just a matter of mere application. Okay, we figured out what freedom is. How do we apply it Mm -hmm. in the world now? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are all these other questions of application that are very important and that make things like, I don't know, the relationship to the freedom of others, right? The relationship to space, what you call the spatiality of of, of practical life, right? The, a relationship to material conditions, but he's still too bound by the formalism to think through a true unified picture of what a formal conception of freedom plus its uh, realization in the world. He can't build a coherent picture, a unity out of these two things. And so I guess that's where the, the, Ger- the German idealists, that's where Fichte and, and Hegel step in and we're like, yeah, no, political economy is an essential part of thinking about freedom. Like even mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. the freedom as a kind of rational self act, self-relation, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I just love the way that you, I mean, yeah, this is more of a call, but I love the way that you flesh out that progression from like a conception of just like freedom uh, as a kind of, I don't know, a pure exercise, something to do purely with reason. There's something to do with the world, and I can't, can't quite out of it, get out of it. And I just, yeah, Fichte, Fichte and, and Hegel tell us, no, you got to do political economy to make this concept of freedom work. I was just going to like you know, just echo Owen. Like I thought, what was really great is that I think sometimes you read some philosophy, contemporary philosophy, that wants to talk about freedom, and it's as if political economy. Well, <laughs> that's what economists do or <laughs> sociologists. Like we want to get the concept. But what I found incredible here is you know, from Fichte to Hegel, if you want an intelligible concept of freedom, you must be also talking about political economy because political economy helps set the conditions of intelligence for what is mine and what is yours. But then when you get to Hegel and you start talking about crime and conflict and negativity, that's not simply external to the philosophical concept of what you're trying to render. That is, you know, that is its its very source. It's, uh, it's meat. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's really, really incredible stuff. It does fly in the face of all the kind of disciplinary policing that goes on. You know, there was this recent argument about whether Marx counts as a philosopher, 
because he talks about economics or because he talks about history, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Lillian so was particularly mad at you on Twitter this. about this, everybody. Just so you know, I'm mad. Yeah. I thought this was a, a, an absurd discussion that went on. <laughs> yeah, but once you understand the tradition, exactly, because once you understand the tradition that Marx is coming out of, and this what you were referring to as like German political economy, you realize that political economy is an extension of thinking about things like freedom, ethics, yeah. normativity, yeah. agency. Yeah. Political economy is in, in organically and inherently connected to those kinds of, maybe it's a shorter way of saying what I was trying to say earlier instead of this long-winded um, yeah. thing, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just, that's so right. It's so fascinating just to see that already in like the late 18th, early 19th century. I mean, these thinkers, mm-hmm. it's very kind of early primitive political economy, right? It's not so... It's not. It's not to say complex forms that we have now. So they're, they're they have this this conception of classes, this conception of like money, conception labor. of property and labor. Kant's conceptions are still. Um, he's kind of mixing feudalist and capitalist and artisanal conceptions of of, of petty producers together um, in his conception. He kind of wants everyone to have property on the space on the planet. And I don't think he believes everyone will be a wage laborer, you know, for Kant. I think that that's like kind of a form of slavery for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, him and um, Thomas for, Jefferson. I feel like that's what Kant reminds <laughs> me of. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Um, Fichte, Fichte reads, you know, political economy, and it's a central part of his his conception of, of law, right? his conception of right. And for Hegel, it's, it's core. But they have like a theoretical reason for it. It's not just like this is important because this affects us. It's like we become who we are through our relationships to other people, through meeting needs for other people, through working for, through working for ourselves. Through, you know, we discover new things about ourselves. Like conflicts arise that change our subjectivity, that create new objectivities for us, new worlds, like new relations. So you have to dive into this stuff. You'd have to dive into this strange world of political economy um, on their very kind of abstract level mm-hmm. to, to think about all the kinds of new forms of beings we are and the new kinds of freedom and limitations and relations we have and could have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and they think it's just they think it's just wild. I mean, Hegel was just totally fascinated by political economy mm-hmm. and the movement of prices, like how it just how that happens, the, the 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 abstraction of labor, like you said, Lillian. He you know he called the economy in one of his early texts. We called it the system of need. It's a very cool idea, I think. Like to think of economy as a system of needs, mm-hmm. a meeting of needs. It's not it's not like a market. It's a system of needs. But he also said you know he realized it's a form of alienation, and he called it the self-moving life of the dead. <laughs> oh god we love what? we love him for that that that's what the wow. market is for he called it the self-moving life of the dead hegel will always be a real one for uh-huh. me i, I don't <laughs> even care uh, i don't even care if it cashes out in you know a sort of a, a, a constitutional monarchy yeah. i love it i love it <laughs> so there's a couple of things here that i was hoping we could dive in a little deeper on in the ficta that i think draws like comes directly out of what you were just saying jacob about the sort of the necessity of considering these questions of political economy for meditation on freedom and agency as being like constitutive of subjectivity and like what we end up becoming and learning about ourselves. One is that apparently, I didn't know this, uh, but you say it in the book, Fichte goes so far as to say something like class belonging is a transcendentally necessary condition for (laughs) self-consciousness. Well, maybe a little strongly put, maybe, maybe not. I say that. You say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that. It's a great claim, though. It's a a cool claim. I'm into it. Maybe bringing it down to earth a little bit. Like, this seems to be true, the necessity of, yeah, going to the political economic, because of the sort of centrality of labor and how labor 
does this work somehow of kind of integrating us within a sort of social totality. And this, I think, leads to some of Fichte's most like wildly radical claims that you discuss about like what it is that the, the state's job then is if it is true that my right to life is really what's at stake in defending a, the property regime and I need the right to live off my labor to be guaranteed. You give an example uh, or he gives an example that you bring up about like, I want to get it right. If, if, it, if there was a state where everyone was naked, you wouldn't have the right to be a tailor as a job or, and this is the thing that <laughs> blew my mind, or the state would have to stop people from being naked any longer. So like that, that shocked me like completely. Cause it sounds though as, as though now, like part of what the state's job is on Ficta's picture is like ensuring that the labor being done is, it renders people, their existence livable or continuable. And that might literally mean like forcing some, balanced harmony of trade where like people have to buy a certain amount of like widgets or something. <laughs> Am I getting the picture? It seemed completely wild. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Nice way to put it. Um, I mean, because Fichte sees human beings as, as active, as, 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 as essentially active beings, right. Where our, our, our freedom is, is um, in terms of our activity is our efficacy. He calls it this activity is central to who we are. And this activity um, requires a time and a space in which to to realize itself. It requires others also, and he calls this kind of regime kind of a, a property contract. It's 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 that kind of political expression which can guarantee my right to be an active subject, and to understand like how our how our activities can realize themselves through through labor. You need to understand you know the labors that make up society. So he has got this really basic understanding of the different kind of labors of society. You know, it's a very classical class conception of farmers, uh, merchants, yeah. uh, artisans, workers, and, and, and this is kind of the baseline of society. And then there's the other, other, other jobs and higher jobs, but he's like, you have to make sure our needs are all met. So you basically need to make sure that these kinds of labor are distributed equally and done in a certain ways. And they all should have honor as well. But, uh, you know, but on top of this, you, you can also should have the ability to work in different ways that you want to work, but you, you cannot do so. It's not a free market, right? Right. So you can't mm -hmm. just like, it's not a free market understanding. You can't just do whatever you want and then sell your goods and hope someone does it and, and maybe someone's livelihood falls apart. You need to make sure everyone's livelihood is guaranteed um, or else the, the state is, is not justified. So yeah, if you want to be a tailor in the land of the naked, it's a hard job. Right. <laughs> it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard job to sell. So either you got to make sure one person wears clothes, and then they can work on them, or or you got to. It's a tough market. You got to find actually you gotta, like so create cool. the conditions. Yeah, yeah. That that also gets to what you said before about how different this is from the sort of classical conception of property, because this also means that like it's not the sort of at will usage at my discretion in whatever way of whatever thing I happen to have. But because it's only justified in reference to meeting these needs and enabling freedom, right? So, like, it's got conditions, and that's going to need to be enforced in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. It, it can go a dark way. I don't know if you sure. see that, right? <laughs> sure. So, you know, if everyone has to work, right? And if you have to control the borders as well so that, like, the products don't come in, you might, you know, it could be a police state. Yeah. Right. And one in one interpretation yeah, totally. of 
Mm-hmm. It could be a clo- It could be a police state, right? One that has to regulate a police in kind of the German conception of the term. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, like managing or... polizei. Like you need to manage the prices. You need to manage yeah. people and goods and how how they relate. That's one interpretation of Fichte that you know people called him a totalitarian. So he he gets called all the things, but like that, yeah. Another interpretation is that no, he's he's like a, he's a, he's an early socialist or one other person is like he's just a liberal with some <laughs> um, social democratic understandings of um, basic income. You know, or or he's a Keynesian already. He's a proto-Keynesian with understanding of. So you have all these. I, I just love philosophers who can like kind of withstand all these mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. different different labels. There there there's something true about, about about them in different ways, and that you really have to kind of make a claim to get in there and try to understand them and make make sense of them in a way that's useful and productive for you, while being true to the text as much as you can. But I yeah I, I like that that they have this ability to bear the burden of um, multiple interpretations. Um, so because I'm, I don't think we should leave the episode without having some discussion of, of the Hegel stuff, because I thought what was pretty dope about the, your interpretation was that you say that where Hegel arrives is in like dissolving the tie between property and freedom. So like, why, why is that? How do we, how do we get there with, with Hegel? Because it does seem like I mean, these are generational differences in the kind of world people are seeing around them. And so the idea of like abstract labor that that I mentioned at the beginning, I don't think you use the word abstract labor, but like the Marxian idea of abstract labor, where labor becomes abstract from the perspective of the production process, which is historically thought to produce alienation. And you do talk about alienation. Hegel is like seeing this differently than previous generations. Um, and clearly this gets picked up on by Marx. Um, but like Hegel has a sort of boldness in like pursuing things to their logical conclusion in, in a way. So that you start with like conceptualizing property, its relationship as a, a postulate of human freedom. And then you move on to saying that uh, having such a close connection between labor and therefore property and freedom. And then we get to Hegel and he's like, on some other shit. So, yeah. Like, what, what do you yes, guys think? Yes, yes. <laughs> so, let me just, like, this will, it'll, it'll sound very counterintuitive to any Hegel scholar, right, who says I don't, property and freedom are not tied. Because most people focus on his late work, The Philosophy of Right. And um, the first expression of uh, the will in that book is abstract right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the first kind of expression of abstract right is property. So property in Hegel's mature work is kind of the first expression of freedom. It's a very limited conception of freedom. It's very formalistic, and it, it has all these pathologies and all these problems. If you just treat people as property owners, you get into kinds of um, crises and, and, and more moral quandaries that can't be resolved without kind of a, an ethical framework. That's the later Hegel. What I was fascinated by in this early stuff is that this is not there yet, right? This, this, is, this is about possession and, um, and property emerging from need, right? So from conflicts over needs, and that's why he calls it the system of need, right? So freedom, I think, is something that emerges later in this development of like self-consciousness, of, of relating to other people, this kind of objective freedom that gets institutionalized in, in states or in laws or in ethical communities. Here, possessions over things and, and conflicts over possessions and their transformation into property are about needs and how do people manage needs and how do people work and create create goods and, and produce surpluses and how does working and creating goods create inequalities in people's power and those inequalities then can lead to struggles um, what he calls you know struggles to the death over property over recognition over honor um, to be seen as someone valid in the eyes of another 
so possession and property are, are kind of part of this conflict of desire, of, of need, that expands our, our limited conception of ourselves as contained. So I'm contained in myself or my mm -hmm. family. I can meet my needs. But actually, when, once I start seeing that I am dependent on others, I, I take this as kind of a harm, uh, as an insult at first, that I shouldn't be dependent on others. I should be independent. But in trying to be independent, I further my dependency and I realize that I'm not just a self-contained subject. I require them to grant me the ability to be independent. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the mm -hmm. reversal that I love yep. in Hegel and that, 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 that occurs here. So freedom is, is a slow thing that emerges, I think, later in this process or, or this kind of rich conception of freedom. Here, uh, property and possession are, are, are not expressions of freedom yet. I don't think so. Mm. On the contrary, you know, theft and crime can be expressions of freedom, right? Because they break the, the, these abstract norms mm -hmm. of, reckon, of like, you know, who has what, who, who is self-contained, who is independent from each other. They're negative expressions of freedom, right? I break the norm of recognition of your goods. I assert my individuality. You either recognize it or you don't. And that a conflict can, can occur in which we can work that out or not um, in Hegel's terms. He thinks that's like a, it's, it's, it's a limited, it's also a, a negative form of freedom that it can cause pathologies and crises as well and requires a, a more holistic account. But at this stage, yeah, I think that's, that's really you know, provocative and, un, and usually undiscussed in Hegel's work. Does Hegel think that there can be any sort of final resolution to these imminent crises tendencies? So, you know, you, mm. you talk about how Hegel starts to realize, you know, need or the enjoyment, the satisfaction of the need is not necessarily finite. You could always want more. And Hegel, because, you know, uh, as Lillian said, you know, Hegel follows this to the logical conclusion. This is, you know, problem one, because it runs up against, you know, boundaries of finitude. But two, this seems to start to actually, you know, create imbalances of inequality, you know, with the, the business class that is necessary but also becomes a type of, you know, a social obstacle to the equilibrium or coherence of social life. And I'm wondering, um, in the early Hegel, does he think that this is just something the state is going to have to constantly try to manage and contain? Or does he think that there can actually ever be a resolution of this inequality? Because I, I just want to say for our listeners, what's really great is Hegel realizes the inequality is not external to society. Mm -hmm. He thinks that if these are that's imminent to the dynamics of the a relationship between uh, enjoyment and infinite desire and finitude. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, this seems rather different than what Fichte seems to be calling for, which yeah. is actually, you know, inequality is not a necessary component of mm. social life. In fact, that's how you can judge social life and call for the state to do what it needs to do. But I sense that there's something different going on with Hegel. I don't know if it's a more of a realism or he's using a different type of mode of thinking, but what is, you know, Hegel's relationship to to the internal crises of inequality. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great observation. I mean, Fichte does, I think, think you can solve it, right? He tries to create a structure that can resolve this contradiction, these crises, yeah. um, in a way. And, and, and that's, you know, his genius and his limitation, right, to, to finalize the structure of society so that conflict um, is, is over. I think, yeah, Hegel, you could say he's more realist, or, or this is just his philosophical perspective, is that conflicts are not always bad, or they're not... They're not, mm -hmm. they're not, they're, they're, they're not, they shouldn't always be avoided, right? Um, they are also mediums of self-development, of reflection and of knowledge and of, of freedom. So for Hegel, he, he's got this conception, yeah, you, the crises of inequality, when they get um, legalized and rationalized in a state, they don't go away. 
right? They, they, they become generalized. Mm. And they become generalized in the inequalities of supply and demand as well. And so this, this crisis of supply and demand, the crisis of the market that generalize and institutionalize inequality in like pre-political or non-market settings, he thinks you cannot resolve it finally, but you can, you can tame it. Mm-hmm. You could tame it mm-hmm. and you can manage it using different um, social structures. And this is where he gets into this theory of what he calls the estates and the corporation. Mm-hmm. And these are kind of external and internal mechanisms for controlling uh, needs on the one hand and, and uh, making sure people's needs are met, making people pe- that making sure people find dignity in their labor. And then on the other hand, controlling prices as well, prices that, that stay in a certain boundary. So he's got these kind of institutional structures, proto labor unions and proto economic, um, macroeconomic <laughs> planners, to mediate and temper and temper the fluctuations of the market. I think that's why uh, Jeff Mann, in his book um, "In the Long Run, We're All Dead," it's a book about Keynesianism. He calls Hegel the first Keynesian. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can see that. Uh, he calls Hegel a hundred hundred years yeah before before Keynes. He calls Hegel the first <laughs> Keynesian because. He knew these prices were internal, intrinsic, like you said, but but mm-hmm. you cannot um, go around them. You have to make, you have to tame them, domesticate them, and use them, actually, in a sense, to to for the dynamic of society. Hmm. So I um I I wanted to ask about like a follow up question because I think the point that you brought us to about the the con- the contradictions that Hegel acknowledges and because he kind of thinks all conflict. You can't get rid of the conflict, so like managing the conflict is becomes what you do, and that's I, I see the the proto Keynesian thing there, but like I think it's interesting to try to talk about like what actually is wrong with a contradiction. So like mm-hmm. Marxists talk about contradictions a lot, like they're obviously bad. Contradictions lead to crises, and therefore there's got to be something wrong with that. And so we notice that like. You know, now, for example, you know, Nancy Fraser's idea of capitalism, of like as, as an institutional social, social order, it's a crisis critique. It's like there are these contradictions amidst these institutions. They create crises. This is a, a problem with like a deficit of democracy. This is like something we can't control. It undermines our ability to keep certain things afloat. And what I'm always struggling with is like, what's wrong with a contradiction? So like, if you want to make a critique of capitalist society, that's like, yeah, the answer is that we have to expropriate these people. Like we have to get rid of, which is what I'm always advocating on the pad. Expropriation. <laughs> we want <laughs> the way to I like, I like, the Just so people are saying, I pushed up my glasses and I was like, expropriation is <laughs> desirable. Okay. Um, but the, the thing is, is to make that argument like something more is is needed. Like you could, just pointing out a contradiction doesn't do it because Hegel is like, yeah, there's contradiction. Like, why don't we just manage contradictions mm-hmm. well enough? Mm-hmm. So I always wonder, like, from this basis, what could what could be more deeply wrong with contradictions given this kind of f- framing of this tradition? And then, like, do, do, does Marx have a good answer to this about like what's wrong with contradictions? I, I don't actually know if he does. Yeah, yeah, that's good, good, very good, good questions. Um, I'm not sure how much he even uses the phrase contradiction actually in his early work. I have to I have to look into that more. There's definitely conflicts and crises and problems, and mm-hmm. but contradiction, yeah, this this logical concept. I wonder how much it appears here. I mean, the re- the usual kind of answer is that you know a contradiction within um, this within like civil society for Hegel is that it's supposed to create a 
institutional structure which can recognize people as dignified and free through giving them expression to um, to work and to have property and to have be a member of family and a member of society. But in so doing, it also generates um, unemployment and it also denies people the ability to find work. And therefore it, 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 um, it denies their dignity and it denies their freedom of subjects. So in both, in both um, enabling people to be free subject, it also denies them to be free subjects at the same time. So, so one reading of civil society in Hegel, which is this later development of the system of need is that, yeah, there's a contradiction there. And, um, and for Hegel says, yeah, that's a problem. And it's a difficult problem. Um, there are attempts to resolve it, like, like some of the institutions I recognize, I, I said, like, like unions or guilds or estates mm -hmm. or corporations, what he calls, or colonialism, right? So Hegel's conception of colonialism appears here. Um, and there's an interesting research on, you know, this, this conception of colonialism as a means of dealing with domestic unemployment, of course. Hegel already kind of deals, he says it doesn't really resolve the problem. It just creates another problem over there. As long as it's over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So <laughs> these problems arise, these kind of internal contradictions, you could say, arise, but it's not like they they ruin the system, I think, for Hegel, right? right. They, they just point to a problem that's like, that's it's just there, mm -hmm. right? It's not, like, it's not like the system falls apart. Whereas for Fichte, right, if you don't have property, you know, the system's over. <laughs> it's like, it's, yes. it's unjust. <laughs> It's unjust. Get out of there. Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's done. You know, you got you you you, no you to resolve it. You know, for Hegel, say, you got a problem. That's just, that's just part of who we are. We're problematic, contradictory beings. So, yeah, I, I would say it is difficult to have a theory of yeah. a critique just based on the concept of contradiction mm -hmm. alone. If, if you think that contradictions are not somehow yeah, external to us, but somehow internal to who we are. Right. And so the, Hegel would, would go a different way of looking at these the problems of like, you mm. know, what does it mean to deny dignity? What does it mean to, to deny our dependency on others, to not recognize right. our, our mutual dependency? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to not recognize that I am vulnerable to other people's possessions, to vulnerable to other people's claims on the world? I, I would go in that direction, like an alternative way of understanding the harm of, 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 of our economy. Hmm. Yeah. Famously, of course, like I think we've even talked about this before on the pod, like one of the things that happens in the philosophy of right is this moment toward the end where he recognizes the like maybe necessity, the contingent necessity, but necessity of their developing because of the sort of conflictual, contradictory character of the mediations that make up civil society as like something attempting to, you know, resolve the system of needs. Uh, yeah, this like, you know, underemployment and structural underemployment, which manifests ultimately as the rabble, right? These people who are yeah. systematically disaffected from the sentiment of right and who no longer recognize themselves as being represented mm -hmm. uh, in and through the state. And in there, too, he's sort of like, you know, maybe give him some money, but that ain't it, <laughs> you know? And, like, I guess they're kind of, whoops. And then he sort of moves on. It's a, it's an yeah. odd moment um, for him. Yeah. But it's, yeah. in, in part, I think, you know, we can give him a hard time for this. But on the other hand, he just sort of is recognizing something true about a capitalist economy. Yeah, yeah. Listening to this, it just makes me think that, you know, the reason why it seems like contradiction can't ground a sort of a theory of the necessity of transformation is one can think that, you know, this is the, the card that we were dealt. This is a rational form of life. But just because it's a rational form of life doesn't mean that there will there won't be conflicts. And so you need some other criteria, I think, in order to say that something is a fatal contradiction, that yeah. it's a contradiction yeah, that's totally. you know, not just in, internal, but, you know, 
structurally disenabling mm-hmm. of that form of life. Mm-hmm. Or else, mm-hmm. you know, as you were talking, I just kept thinking of Whitman's Leaves of Grass, where he says, and so I contradict myself. <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> I am large. Yeah. I contain multitudes. And like that can also be the relationship one has to contradictions and be like, and yes, of course, yeah. I am complex. This is what it means to be a social being. And so I think it's right that, you know, Marxists or people on the left cannot simply depend on the notion of pointing out contradictions or else, unfortunately, we might find ourselves just being in step with Hegel, except Hegel would be like, unlike you, I see the logical necessity of these contradictions and you just keep like, you know, leaning against, tilting against windmills, wishing them away. And so, yeah, I think, you know, as you're talking, I think that's kind of the genius of Hegel where, again, he has the, the courage of the commitment to think it through and say, and yes, we have to admit this, and but this too is a part of a rational form of life. What I like about Marx and the kind of thinkers in the Marx tradition is that the sophisticated ones, you know, they don't say like we're gonna have like a socialist communist society in which contradictions over or, or like conflicts over, crisis over. It's basically about shifting the parameters in which we can manage our own conflicts as they arise and, and, and mm-hmm. deal with them in ways that are in our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what I like about that. That's kind of a way of reading the, the contradict the problem of crises, the problem of conflict in a way that's interesting to me, right? That mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's it's our ability to to take care of problems that right now seem to be out of our hands. Hmm. Yes. So Marx and Engels say in the Communist Manifesto, right, that they define communism. They say you can define it in one sentence, right? It's the abolition of private property. So I wanted to ask before, uh, get a chance to ask before we go. um, I mean, so, and he says above that, right, that this does not mean the abolition of property generally. He's very keen to say, like, this is the, I mean, the abolition of bourgeois property. And I think for a lot of people, they find that confusing. And the abolition of private property is one thing that, you know, lots of people freak out about. Like, this is, for them, the opening of the worst kinds of totalitarianism and all of that. I think that, and I wonder if maybe this is, I didn't get a chance to finish it, but your work on expropriating the expropriators. um, What relationship does that notion, like, have to the notion of abolishing like private property? And do you like derive resources in your kind of more Marxist work? Is there a way that this stuff you've done on German idealism and the attempts to delineate a theory of property that goes well beyond just what we understand as I own some stuff and like, you know, I have exclusive right to use it because <laughs> the law tells me I do. Right. Yeah. So resources for filling in what this, what is meant when they, when Marx and Engels say like, Oh, we don't mean the abolition of property generally. Like there is, we can at least envision provisionally, what a world in which, yeah, people, you still have stuff, but it's a, it's under like, I don't know, there's almost like that difference, that small difference that makes all the difference between how we would have stuff sure. under socialism versus how we have stuff under capitalism. I think that that's kind of one of the motivations for me for thinking through this stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, Marx, Marx uh, in the Grundrisse and German ideology and young works, he also, he, he always says, you know, it's, it's, it's the abolition of property and the realization of property. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's the creation of true property. Yeah. You know, he, mm-hmm. you know, they're in the, in the Grundrisse, he's got this whole section on, on alternative forms of property and pre-capitalist life. Mm-hmm. And, and how how property property can can mediate the the relation between the individual and the whole in, in in a complex variety of ways. Mm-hmm. So I've been always interested in exploring what that means, right? Um, you know, because it's just it's it's to me too simple to just say abolish private property, right? Mm-hmm. So what does that leave? What does that what does that leave mm-hmm. with, with us? And Marx recognized that, or Marx and Engels immediately. So if we abolish private property, right, what is left? Some people would say, right, no property. This would be that kind of like we want to have a non-appropriating relation to the world, 
And I just translated a book that makes this argument. Mm. It's by Daniel Lowick. It's called The Abuse of Property, Influenced by Agamben. Mm. Um, you know, we have a, a, not, a non-appropriating relationship with the world. We don't, we don't, we don't have things. We don't appropriate at all. We just kind of use things in ways mm. that um, are free. <laughs> I think there's an interesting discussion to be had there. But I think you, I don't think you can escape the concepts, right? To, to use something freely in common would require excluding those people who want to appropriate it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And that requires kind of, and to me, that is property, right? That, that is making kind of rules and norms and relationships to how we want to use the planet and, 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 rep- and take care of it and, and how we want to relate to other people. So if I want to relate to other people to tell them not to privately appropriate the commons, then I'm, I'm, I am implicitly mm-hmm. enforcing a property concept Yes. Yeah. So then, Agreed. either we either we make that explicit and then kind of flesh that out, and what does that mean? Why? How, how can we do that? How can that be justified? Mm-hmm. How is that possible? You know, in a state without a state, you know, in a commune, in a federation, with goods, with labor, that that's that to me kind of sparked some of my interest in thinking through these conceptions of property and um, expropriation. To get back to the concept, is a is a property concept, right? It's about relating to. Um, to the title and to the to the to transfer property of someone else, and thinking through expropriation to me is something to, we should seriously also talk about, not just as a slogan, mm-hmm. but as you know, how, what does that mean to expropriate? Who does it? What justifies it? What does that lead to? Does it lead to state property or to commons or to socialized property? Mm-hmm. It's a very yeah. it's a very actual debate in Germany right now, as Lillian knows. You know, people talking about expropriating housing, for instance, or expropriating energy companies, whether in terms of nationalizing them or communizing them so so i think yeah it's just these are like topics that need to be discussed um and there's a lot to be done mm-hmm, totally all right i think that does it for us today um we'd once again like to thank jacob blumenfeld for joining us jacob would you like to tell our audience about where they can find you either online or about anything you've got coming up we'll of course put links to the things that we mentioned in our show notes but maybe- yeah yeah i mean you can find my work on academia i know the site sucks but this, this is what i that's what i use I'm working on right now the concept of socialization. So the socialization of property, that's my next topic, the history of that concept, you know, what does it mean to socialize industry or land or um, or natural resources? I'm 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 trying to write a book on that and what does it mean to socialize goods? I'm looking at kind of German um, German socialists who talked about that and others. So look for that in the future and um, I'm also writing about climate change sometimes. Yeah, that's it. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jacob. That was great. You're welcome. Well, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube, free videos, and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Adam, Joe Selinski, Arthur, Asamu5, Stephen Rice, Aaron Greer, H.G. Wells, <laughs> Jerome Mueller, Dwayne Monroe, Adam Siverston, Eli Kokesh, Kenneth Jackson DeLay, Oana Urian, Connor Cooper, Terrence Renaud, Jace Short, Alex Gurovich, Stephen Hughes, Victoria Pierce, and River on Fire. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing, and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos and access to our Discord server. In addition, you can support us by buying some What's Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. 
Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. And with that, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. See you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.